I was on call last evening for sexual health emergencies, and this 75-year-old woman turned up at the clinic and said she was having some pain in her bladder. So I asked her to get up on the plinth or the, the bed where I do examinations, and I'm ready to examine her, and she sits bolt upright and says to me in her thick Polish accent, I cannot have an orgasm, she screams. My <laughs> my first question, I'm, it's not a laughing matter, but uh, picture the scene. My first question, how long has this been going going on? She She came in there with her husband, and she said for 10 years. I said, that's okay. You've come to the right place here at the CKNW Sunday Night Sex Show, the show where we educate men and women about sexual health, how it relates to overall health, making relationships the best they can be. That is actually a true story, and it's not the typical person that people associate with being sexually active, but anybody can be sexually active at any age. You have a much better chance of having a great sex life if you are in good health uh, and take care of yourself or emotionally, physically healthy You don't have extra weight on you because it's always about blood flow. That's very important. So at any age, you can have a satisfying sex life. Sometimes you have to learn about it, though, even if you've been having sex for a long time because things can change. Sexual desire is a hot topic these days, and I'm going to address the causes of this in both women and in men tonight. I'll be talking with Dr. Zara Dimerman. She's a psychologist and author of Why Married People Don't Have Sex at least not with each other. And later in the program, I will be talking with Dr. Stacey Elliott, a men's health specialist, and she and I are going to talk about testosterone. To do my little part in all of this sexual desire thing and get you back to the bedroom, having great sex and having sex, actually, uh, this week, CKW and I are launching Sex in 60 Seconds. Yes, that is a lifetime for many and a big disappointment for a few as well. No, probably a lot more than a few. All kidding aside, the segments will uh, run during the drive time, which will help to get help to have you help you to increase your see how excited I'm getting help you to increase your sex drive It'll focus on women's sexual desire from raising awareness about the subject to what you can do about it and what are some of the signs that it uh, and some of the some of the impact it may have on your relationship it can have a pretty negative impact on your relationship it's not that women don't want to have sex lots of women report self-stimulation and masturbation they just don't want to have sex with their partners, their husbands, their, anyway, for whatever reason, but we're going to explore all that tonight. So hopefully you'll enjoy that sex in 60 seconds. For some, it may be all you get, but I am anyway trying to help that. This is a multi-orgasmic week as I am also relaunching my website, www.backtothebedroomca, complete with a new and improved blog, uh, also called Back to the Bedroom. Uh, just to try and get everybody back to the bedroom. For those who turn their back on the bedroom, those who want to get back and have more fun in the bedroom. Of course, we are heading up to Valentine's Day. And to that end, I have some tickets for you and a great event for you and your sweetie to go to, if you like. It is a, um, this guy, I actually heard him uh, uh, perform at an event that I was at. Now, as you know, I go to a number of events. And, um... So I just was expecting just a typical uh, musical performance, nothing special. I love music, as you know, and uh, it's it's a big part of me So and a big part of my life. 
So when I heard this guy, I thought, he is amazing, but it's any wonder because he used to perform with The Temptations. His name is Riley Ng, and he's performing a night of Motown music on none other than Saturday, February 14th, Valentine's Day. So I have two tickets for you and your lover. And even if you bring someone you don't like, it's fine because you'll thoroughly enjoy uh, Riley's performance. It's a flashback to Motown Review, and he is fantastic. Um, so there's, it's at the, did I mention that? It's at the Edgewater Casino. It's Saturday night. The doors open at seven. The show goes from eight to 11. And, um, anyway, tickets are worth like $30 a piece. So it might be some, especially if you are looking after your finances or, or you've made a resolution, uh, to not spend as much money this year, or if you're a big cheapskate and you just, uh, want to get away and the spending the least amount of money possible. Anyway, give me a call, 604-280-9898 or star 9898 on your cell to win those tickets. Um, you can always email me uh, anyway, just for life, or tell me about your your sex life. A lot of people do. Thank you very much. And some tell me how it's improved. So, uh, sure, I love to see those emails. <laughs> so email me or call me 604-280-9898 or star 9898 on your cell phone. So next week also, well, when you call, I don't want to forget this. This is the most important part of it all. When you call, you'll be talking to Chad, the uh, tech producer here, and he does a fabulous job always. He's at the controls here of this sex show. So thanks to Mr. Chad Bruhog for... Uh, um, running the show from a technical perspective. Anyway, um, next week I'm going to be at the wellness show and it's on Saturday and it's on Friday, Saturday and Sunday. It's here at the convention center. So Saturday afternoon at three fifteen, in conjunction with fresh magazine, I'll be on a panel with the lovely Fiona Forbes, who's has her own new show, uh, this year on Thursday nights at six and 10 on Shaw cable. And uh, also Lorna Vanderhag. She's an author and nutrition, nutritionist, sorry, and she is, uh, she does a lot of work around uh, menopause and vitamins. So we're going to be sharing our health and personal growth stories. So I'll be talking about all of my mistakes, faux pas, bad turns, poor choices, bad decisions, and everything else that has taught me to be the sexpert that I have become. God knows how. Anyway, should be fun. So uh, I'll be sharing some of the secrets. Uh, so that's at 3.15 on Saturday afternoon. And then on Sunday at uh, noon, I'll be speaking about sexual desire in women. But that does not preclude the men from coming to this event. Because it's really important that men understand women and women understand women. Uh, so there should be lots of information there. But come on down if you want to figure out women or your own self or your help with some of your sexuality issues or concerns. Um, but you have to uh, understand female sexual desire or lack thereof. And so I'm going to try and navigate that for you, give you a little hand with that, no pun intended. Uh, as I said, I'm going to be talking about uh, testosterone and as well why people are not having sex with their husbands or wives. But anyway, the other thing I, I noticed uh, it was on Facebook this week, and it was also being covered on the news, was a young woman. She was 29 years old, and she is looking for a partner, a life partner. And so she set out her criteria. And her criteria was things like tall and broad-shouldered and professional and, you know, makes six figures. And, um, you know, uh, just sort of, in my mind, some nebulous uh, criteria, things that really don't matter. Because to me, what matters the most in a great relationship or especially 
and you get back to the bedroom and you wait, when you get down to it is um, the attraction. You can't account for that. The neurochemistry of love and lust, as I talk about quite a bit. When you see somebody, when you look at somebody and you know, I'm attracted to that person, that person just does something I cannot describe it to you. It's not my type, if you will, or what I've, what I've perhaps gone out with in the past. But when, when we choose somebody based on the kind of car that they drive or based on where they're from or their kind of family or even their religion or because somebody else thought he'd be good for you or she'd be good for you, you know, we, we stand to make a grave error in our lives. So hopefully we're going to address a little bit of that with the psychologist that's going to be joining me on the program very shortly. So, uh, in fact, when I come back. So anyway, if you do want to win those tickets and have a lovely little night out at the Edgewater Casino and listen to Riley Ng, do give me a call, 604-280-9898 or star 9898 on your cell. So, is it true married people are not having sex with their wives or their husbands? They're having sex with other people. Well, apparently it is, and I'm going to tell you why when I return. I'm Maureen McGrath. You're listening to the CKNW Sunday Night Sex Show. I love that song. <laughs> That's a nemesis. With, uh, at one of the CKNW parties, uh, somebody sang it, and I've never forgiven her because she did a rock star job. Anyway, I'm Maureen McGrath. You are listening to the CKNW Sunday Night Sex Show. The show where we educate men and women about sexual health, and uh, we're going to focus a little bit on desire, sexual desire. And to that end, I was very interested to see and read a book called Why Married People Are Not Having Sex, At Least With Each Other. And I've read this great book. It's got a lot of great information. And the author, who is also a psychologist, joins me on the line. Dr. Zara Dimerman joins me. Hello, Dr. Zara. Hello, Zara. <laughs> How are you? If you don't mind, let me just correct the title. I know. Go ahead. So, why married couples don't have sex, dot, yes. dot, dot, at least not with each other. I know it's a mouthful. That's okay. I do. I mean, we get the, we get the point. We're all upset. No. <laughs> um. So, well, thank you so much for joining me and talking no about this. I did read it in a in a... A uh, bit of a panic. I've read it over the last couple of days, <laughs> um, which is, but I couldn't put it down. It was excellent and it had great information. Thank you. Um, so tell me, uh, you're in clinical practice. You see patients yeah. who have troubles along the way in their marriage, and and you notice this that this was one of the uh, significant problems that kept presenting to your office. Is that not correct? Absolutely. So I've been counseling couples for about 25 years, and one of the biggest things that uh, when couples come in and, and they're talking about their problems, um, you know, they talk about it in various ways. So they may say we're having issues with intimacy, or they may be as blatant as saying we're not having enough sex. And, you know, often it's the, the gentleman who's saying we're not having enough sex, and she's saying, you know, well, if we had good sex, maybe we'd have more sex. Or, really? You know, or, <laughs> or, you know, or you, oh, I feel backed into a corner, so when I feel that way, I don't want to be sexual with you or why would I want to have sex with somebody, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, of course, I try not to get, well, I try to help them out of the rut and to talk not so much about the number of times that they're having sex a week or a month or a year, but to talk more about what the roadblocks are in terms of what's actually inhibiting them 
or one of them at least from being desirous of the other one. And we do try and quantify how many times people are always measuring up against the neighbors and against friends and, you know, how many times are you having sex and... Um, uh, People want to know what's normal. They do. So that's a question that I get asked all the time is what is normal. And, and, you know, and I'll certainly help them understand whether what's happening with them falls within a semi-range of normal. But really what I say, and it's really the truth, is it's it's not so important, although I know that it's human nature to want to compare and, you know, to, to think about what other people are doing. But really it's about you know, what works for the individual couple. So one couple may only have sex once a month, but they have a lot of other ways of showing intimacy with one another, and they're both fine with it. And then there's other couples where they're having sex once a week and still, you know, one of them is not happy with that. So it's really individual depending on the couple. And some couples could be having sex five or six or ten times a week, and, and that may not be enough for, well, for one or the two of them. I don't couples like that, but... <laughs> I do. I do. It takes all kinds. But but my point being is that people's we have we have desire discrepancy and and some you know some people can be having sex five or six times a week and that's still not enough for one of the one of the partners. So it, if a couple has that desire discrepancy, that can pose a lot of problems as well. Well, for sure, and that's often one of the key concerns that come up is when there seems to be an incompatibility or discrepancy, as you say, you know, with one person wanting to have more. And, and, and you know, just to, in terms of talking about what sex is, and I say this in my book, that really when I talk about sex, it's actually about intercourse because that's what couples are usually talking about. But really it's it's not so much about having more sex that becomes so important. It's about, you know, how do you feel connected to one another? It can be, you know, through foot massages or through just making out because so many couples forget how to kiss and you know many couples will say but you know when we when we have sex we don't even look at one another or when we having sex we don't kiss and that's where it has to start it's like going back and making out in your car you know in terms of building intimacy and building desire it's about wanting to feel passionate towards one another but and when that doesn't happen in a relationship oftentimes one of the partners will make out in their car with somebody else (laughs) Uh, or go outside of the relationship it's often a common reason for sex that's one thing i wanted to say and something else about women is that it's not that women don't want to have sex they don't want to have sex with their husbands as you point out or their partners but they will self-stimulate and they report masturbation so they do want to pleasure themselves and and have an orgasm they view orgasm women view orgasm as as important i i do believe but although there's a lot of uh, information out there that's saying you know don't worry you don't have to have an orgasm is not necessarily a part of great sex yeah for so for some people it is you know for many it is and and for some it may not be but i think it's it's about as you said a little earlier it's the the important thing is it's not that women are not interested in sex and in fact if you just look at what I call the Fifty Shades phenomenon, you know, in terms of mm-hmm. Fifty Shades movies about to come out and there's women that are, you know, booking advanced seats and they've read the books and there's lots of shows on HBO and, you know, all over the Internet and on TV that women are and men are gravitating towards. So it's not that women are not interested in sex and it's not, not that they're not sexual beings. It's that, as you said, they're not interested in having sex 
with their partners. And sometimes it's, it's in the reverse. It's sometimes that the men are not interested in having sex with their partners either. And sometimes that happens over years of the woman pulling back and then suddenly wanting to have sex and a husband, you know, punishing her maybe in a way by not giving of himself. Now that's less less typical because most men are more um, inclined to have sex even if they're not feeling that emotionally connected to their spouse. But for women, it's it's as a result of so many things in particular that are going on that they've lost that the desire has dwindled over the years. And, you know, you talk about infidelity, and I talk, write a lot about that in the book. And it's not that that the woman is not having sex and so her husband goes out and finds it with somebody else. That can happen, but even in somewhat healthy relationships, they're not even immune to infidelity. You know, I write a lot about whether we're meant to be monogamous beings and how hard it is to be monogamous. And so, you know, after many, many years of marriage where you feel like your partner is not appreciating you as much or a man doesn't feel as desired or as loved, you know, suddenly he meets somebody who is just kind of interested in what he or she does or comments on when she's had a haircut or something like that. And it's very easy to find oneself in a relationship, and sometimes it's even emotional infidelity, um, where you are kind of wrapped up, you know, with somebody else. And and today we have the virtual world, and that's a whole new other level of cheating. And, and I believe in your book you do say that if you're seeking uh, to go outside of your relationship or having a relationship online or through texting or email with somebody, it, it's considered infidelity. Absolutely. I mean, if you're anything that you're doing behind your partner's back, anything that you can't share openly with your partner when it has to do with, you know, uh, somebody of the opposite sex or the same sex, depending on which way you're going, um, you know, that would be infidelity. Anything, infidelity is um, doing something behind your partner's back of a sexual or a flirtatious nature. So even if you're going on Facebook and and chatting with an old flame or if you're going on um, dating sites, I mean, I write quite a lot in my book about AshleyMadison.com, which is the world's best-known married dating site. And they have over 26 million people around the globe that are married on that site. And and as you said, I mean, just, it just it, it's so prolific and it's so available to people just to be able to go on their laptops and to do things that are underground. And so cyber sex and meeting people online and having virtual relationships, sexual relationships as well, um, is very, very common, and it's one of the fastest-growing um, Internet addictions, the sexual addiction. And But by the same token, with that virtual world, it's so easy to get caught as well on the on the handheld device or email. Well, yeah, I mean, there are lots of telltale signs, and I think, you know, I think when, when your partner is acting suspicious, there's usually a good reason for that. So, yeah, there there are ways of getting caught, but there's just as many ways of getting caught when you leave a receipt lying around. This is true. So, so I think that actually it's harder to find somebody to find out what somebody is doing because a lot of um, people actually go on porn sites and um, and go on Internet sites even during the workday. They say that actually... All right, you know, largest... we're running to, uh, out of time, okay. but I, wanna, I want you to hang on the line sure. if you don't mind. We're just sure. going to go to break, and then when I come back, I want to talk to you a little bit more about if people should have access to their husbands and wives' passwords and uh, handheld devices and all of their technology. I'm Maureen McGrath. You're listening to the CKNW Sunday Night Sex Show. 
Welcome back. I'm Maureen. You're listening to the CKNW Sunday Night Sex Show. Thank you to Robert and Walter for your calls. You have won the tickets to the uh, Motown Review next week. That's going to be at the Edgewater Casino. And um, you, if you didn't win, <laughs> or you tried to call and you didn't win, and you want to go, you can always purchase tickets at Brown Paper Tickets, for, and it's well worth. It's a nice, nice. Uh, I mean, he's very talented, obviously. Um, but we're going to go back to um, talk with the author of Why Married Couples Don't Have Sex, dot, 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 at least not with each other. Sarah Dimerman joins me. She's on the line. Thanks, Sarah, for staying on the line. My pleasure. A couple, one question I have for you is about the um, passwords to... Uh, partners' telephones and iPads and emails and Facebook and LinkedIn and Twitter and whatever. Uh, you say in your book that you think that the password should be shared, it should be open, you should be able to go on to somebody else's uh, li- account quite readily. Absolutely. I think there's no doubt in my mind about that. Uh, the rule that my husband and I have is that I can't check his emails before he has because I think that's a little invasive. But and you know, of course, I uh, he could always uh, you know d- uh, delete them. That's always the chance that I take. But um, but any time that I want to go on, I can look at anything that he has on his phone, and he can do the same with me and any other electronic device. I think that if if a couple or a husband or wife is saying to one another that they cannot do that, then I think that they are they may be hiding things. I think it, it's a very easy way to hide things from one another. I disagree with you because I think that if in a fully trusting relationship, if, if there's no, not been any history of cheating, if there's no signs of it, um, I, I think that that underscores the trust in that relationship. And I think if you go on to your partners, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, whatever um, account, you something can be taken out of context and it can fuel a whole fire. And I've certainly seen that. Um, so, so I think there's some privacy and there's some boundaries and, and trust is the cornerstone of any healthy and good relationship. Well, I'm not suggesting that people, you know, go on each other's Facebook or look at each other's, go, go on each other's cell phones every single day to see what everybody, what they're doing. I'm just suggesting that if a phone is lying around and you want to look at it or you, and you, or you just want to, uh, check things, I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And when you talk about, um, you know, if there's no prior history, um, unfortunately, I've seen so many couples in, in my practice where there's been absolutely no history. People have been having affairs for years, and then somebody finds out about something. So I don't think that because there's never been a history of something going on or because there's been... No, but uh, I just mean if if, there, if you're, you feel safe and secure and it's a trusting relationship, so, so, uh, I think it would be invading if you picked up somebody else's phone and looked at their private messages, even if you do sleep with that person every night. Well, what I'm but not have sex with them because you're married to them. No, I'm just well, kidding. What I'm, what I'm suggesting really is that the passwords should not be um, kept from one another. So, you know, if for example you're in the phone or you're in the car and you want to check something because the other person is driving, and you say, um, you know, I'll check it for you because you're driving. What's your password? And your partner says to you, oh, no, I prefer not to ch- tell you my password. I'll check it myself later. That's a cause for concern. So I'm not saying necessarily that everybody should be checking on each other. I'm just saying that, that if your partner is not wanting to share a password with you, then that to me would, <clears throat> sorry, that to me would be a warning sign. Maybe. I mean, people in the medical field or in, uh, you know, in 
finance world or, um, you know, other industries where privacy and confidentiality are key mm-hmm. um, than legal, you know, lawyers. Um, I well, think that, you know, if you are sent, if you've got, you know, your email on your phone, it's, it's it can be a privacy and confidentiality issue. It could be, but it could also be a really good excuse for not giving your password. And my understanding is that people who have those kinds of privacy concerns typically have two phones, one that's given to them by the company and one that is their private one. And the, the one that's given to them by the company would certainly not have anything on there that was private because I think the company can have access to that information too. So I don't think there'd be a concern with that. Except for people do, um, they break those rules and regulations all the yeah. time. You know, I mean, it, it's, it's, yeah, it's a, it's yeah. a tough one. And it certainly yeah. um, warrants a lot of dialogue around it. Sure. Um, but uh, so what do you suggest for married couples who don't have sex in, in a nutshell? We don't have too much time. <laughs> well, in a nutshell, that's, that's a tough, uh, tough order. Yes, I know. Um, I mean, I think one of the most important things is to start talking about it. Um, because I think, you know, after many months or years of not having sex, there's certainly an awkwardness that exists between a couple, and they often don't even know where to begin. So sometimes going to a therapist and talking about it, if they don't have the, the techniques or the strategies to bring it up to one another or to really be honest with one another about what their concerns are, um, or reading a book like the one I've written so that they can start to think about some of the real reasons that they're not having sex. Now, even uh, these, you know, I see a lot of couples, they haven't had sex for 8, 10, 12 years. Right. Uh, some people get upset after not having had sex for two weeks. So some people yeah. let it go a long time, some married couples. Oh, yeah. So the couples that are not having, you know, haven't had sex for 8 or 10 years, I mean, are in a very different place, I think, than the couple that gets upset if they haven't had it for two weeks. So, you know, the couple that hasn't had it for two weeks, you may want to work with them about their expectations and what else has been going on and how much they normally have and is this different. The couple that is living in a sexless marriage that hasn't had for a very long time is in a very different place. And you have to wonder really, um, you know, why has that couple waited so long to get help? Maybe they're actually okay with it, but then when they're coming to speak to somebody after eight or ten years, what's taken them so long to get there? So what are the roadblocks? And I think as a therapist, I you know, as a psychologist, my role, I think, is to try to figure out what the roadblocks are on the road and how can we move them off so they can start having a healthier sexual relationship with one another. Exactly. Well, it's a great book you've written. I have read it, Why Married Couples Don't Have Sex, dot, 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 at least not with each other, written by Sarah Dimerman. And you have a lot of other great books as well. So thank you so much for joining me tonight on the program. We're going to switch gears over to the guys now. We're going to talk about low testosterone and how that can affect your sex drive. I'm Maureen McGrath. You're listening to the CKNW Sunday Night Sex Show. Welcome back. I'm Maureen McGrath, the host of the CKNW Sunday Night Sex Show. We're talking testosterone. And to that end, I've invited Dr. Stacy Elliott, clinical professor, Department of Psychiatry and Urologic Sciences at UBC, and also the medical manager at the BC Center for Sexual Medicine. Thank you for joining me in the studio tonight, Dr. Elliott. Thank you for asking. Oh, it's great to have you. So testosterone is all the rage. It can also cause rage. <laughs> Why is testosterone important? Who's at risk for it decreasing? Because that can cause a lot of problems. And, and what can people do? about it? So testosterone is uh, the male hormone, and it does uh, decrease slightly with age as men get older after about age 40 or 50. But that doesn't mean that you're going to have symptoms with it. 
Um, so we tend to look at men who have uh, symptoms such as fatigue, low sexual desire, weakness. Um, sometimes they have other sexual concerns around uh, having trouble reaching orgasm or having erectile dysfunction. But really the issue with low testosterone is that, you know, it tends to be a bit of a uh, media splash right now, and I think we need to take it seriously that those men who do have low testosterone and who are symptomatic do well when they are pl- replaced to normal levels. So the testosterone rage that you're talking about is really men who are at super physiologic or, or excess testosterone, and that is not a good thing. And those are the type of men that would take excess steroids or excess testosterone. And that's really what's given it kind of the bad, scary name because these are, these are side effects that should not happen because they're too high, the levels are too high. But getting back to a normal physiological range, um, I think it's a very healthy thing. We know that androgens are associated with, with good cardiovascular parameters. We know that you need androgens or testosterone to maintain your bone mass. And so if you are low and you suspect that you might be low, the first thing you need to do is see a physician to see whether or not um, they agree that your symptoms are testosterone-related because there's other things that look like that, for example, depression or fatigue from other reasons. But if they suspect that you have what we call hypogonadism or low testosterone, then you should have some measurements and a physical exam and uh, see what comes out of that. Now, is this something that GPs should be screening for? No, I don't think you should screen. I don't think every man that walks in should have a testosterone level. You, you have to have some symptoms or some reason for it. I think it would be too much of a cost burden, and it's not really appropriate. It should be like any other medical um, illness or medical concern that it's evaluated properly. Now, a couple of things I wanted to address. Is there a classic look <clears throat> to the man who has low, low testosterone? Does he have the, the big abdominal girth and falls asleep after dinner? Is there <laughs> a really attractive guy? <laughs> that, that, that is sort of a, a classic picture. So men that have low testosterone, they have changes to their glucose tolerance. They tend to be more obese. It's it, They do put on um, so weight. Sometimes men who have sleep apnea or sleep disorders, their testosterone will be lower. So if I see a gentleman that has, you know, a fairly large abdomen and um, is type 2 diabetic or something like that, the risk of him having low testosterone is is much higher than a slimmer, more active fellow. But that doesn't mean that um, symptom-wise you can't have some people that have low testosterone. Of course you can. You know, I think a classic example of that is sometimes we'll see triathletes that are in terrific shape, but they overtrain and it actually lowers the testosterone. Exactly. And, and some of the treatments, as we know, we'll get into those a bit later, but are the PDE5 inhibitors for erectile dysfunction. Now, how important is a normal testosterone level in the effectiveness of those medications? Yeah, that's a good question, because if your testosterone level is low, the PDE5 inhibitors, which is Viagra, Levitra, Cialis, those type of medications are dependent on a certain level of testosterone. Um, so the PD-5 inhibitors work by being sexually aroused, and then the signal gets enhanced by those pills. And on the pathway for that enhancement to allow more blood to come into the pelvis, um, testosterone is one of the key ingredients. So basically, if your testosterone level is you know less than 10, uh, normal testosterone levels tend to be around 10 to 30 nanomoles per liter. The labs here call lower limits of normal around 8.4 or something like that. And 
sometimes you can have symptoms at those lower levels. So just because it's barely above normal doesn't mean that, you know, you don't need replacement. Um, but other men that have a level of eight do just fine. So, um, the point was that the PD-5 inhibitors, um, if the testosterone levels are replaced to more normal levels, the PD-5 inhibitors may start to work a little bit better. So when we see men that don't respond to PD-5 inhibitors and we suspect that they're hypogonadal, we certainly would look at testosterone for that particular man. So you wouldn't necessarily check a testosterone level prior to prescribing a PD-5 inhibitor for a man? The the erectile dysfunction and the low testosterone are two separate issues. They often link, but they're two separate issues. So you would evaluate each one separately. So if they're coming in with erectile dysfunction um, and they're fatigued and they have very poor libido and you know other signs of low testosterone, then then I would look at testosterone just to make sure. um, But testosterone and erectile function don't necessarily correlate. So if you give somebody back testosterone, their erections may not improve. Often they don't because the erections are more usually of a vascular thing versus an endocrine issue. But in some cases, testosterone does help. And and men need to be psychologically aroused for the PD-5 inhibitors to work as well. Yes, that's a very important point. So when the pills first came on the market, people would sit there and take a pill and say, hey, what happened? You know, nothing's <laughs> happening. So you, you have to have some sexual arousal. So all the, do, all the pills do is enhance that signal. They don't create an erection. That's right. And, and some men, uh, I, I hear quite often, they'll say, well, I, I tried it once. It didn't work. And they often need to take it more than once. You need to have several tries of the pills before you say that they're not effective. Um, And so the arousal part is very important. So the, the other thing with the testosterone is that if your libido is suppressed because your testosterone is quite low, some men have trouble getting aroused to even get an erection. Right? That's so right. When their testosterone levels are normalized, they feel, they feel a little more um, get up and go. Um, you know, certainly that falling asleep in the afternoon is not an uncommon sign. Um, and so once they start taking that, they, they do feel a little healthier. We, we actually look at low testosterone maybe as a bit of marker for whether somebody's overall health is good or not. And when somebody's distinctly overweight or um, they are obese, then the chances of uh, low testosterone are much higher. And sometimes uh, bringing their testosterone levels to normal level and including the diet and the exercise and all the things that are motivating, sometimes with the weight loss, the testosterone levels come up on their own, and then you don't necessarily need to have additional testosterone. Yeah, so I was wondering, how does one treat low testosterone levels? And you mentioned diet and exercise, and that can be very beneficial. And uh, But some people are going to need to be... to have their testosterone replaced. That's right. So there's different products for uh, testosterone replacement. And, you know, it's very fortunate now, like when I went to medical school, we had shots, you know, into the buttock and into the muscle. And and that was what kind of gave the bad reputation because I think we were giving way too much back then. And so you'd have very high peaks and then very low troughs and you feel draggy and then a very high peak. And those high peaks um, are, are the what causes a problem. They can increase the thickness of your blood, they increase the number of red blood cells. So, you know, we have to monitor that. So shots are still possible. They're the least expensive way. If they're monitored well, if you take them every week or every second week and not longer than that, because longer than that, there really isn't any testosterone left. 
So taking a shot every week or every two weeks and being monitored in terms of your hemoglobin and your hematocrit and um, testosterone levels, you certainly have to monitor your PSA, your prostate-specific antigen, and make sure you have a full examination and a rectal examination before you start anything. Um, so shots are one option. There's also pills that you can take. Um, they are reliant on fat to be absorbed. So if you just pop them in the morning with your dry toast, they're going to go right through and not be effective. Um, and then, and most, so what kind of breakfast would you suggest for somebody? Uh, on pills, you'd have to have some eggs or cheese or something with some fat in okay. it for sure. And same with dinner. So the pills you take twice a day. Um, and then the most popular and um, most physiologic probably are the transdermal gels or the gels that you put on your skin and it gets absorbed. So you do that every morning. And there's several, uh, three or four products on the market now um, that are excellent for that. Now, can testosterone levels normal or normalize or is this lifelong therapy? If you, again, lose weight or if you um, exercise a lot, exercise will temporarily boost your testosterone levels. Um, sometimes people can, you know, get their, their normalize their testosterone levels. You, it's very important for the family doctor or whoever they're going to see to figure out why their testosterone levels are low. So you just don't give somebody testosterone. You need to know, is there something going on in the brain that's not telling the testicles to make testosterone, or is there something going on in the testicles? So you need to find out why. So, for example, if somebody has a little bit of a, what we call a prolactinoma or something in the brain or that is compressing the hypothalamus or the pituitary, then it, you know treatment of that will shrink that, and then your testosterone levels will rebound. Another common cause of low testosterone is opioid use. So there's a lot of people in chronic pain, a lot of people on pain medications of the opioid nature, and that will also suppress it. So getting off opioids will also increase your testosterone. And that's very interesting because chronic pain is uh, epidemic uh, yes. today. Yes. And and many people pop opioids, and then they lose their effectiveness, and people start taking more. And Yeah, so that will suppress it. And, um, you know, testosterone's got some great benefits on uh, mood. You can't use testosterone to treat clinical depression, but it certainly improves mood. At least that's what the wives certainly tell me. They're much easier to live with, not so irritable. Um, well, that's helpful. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and partners, uh, you know, agree with that. So it, men just feel better. And, um, you know, for example, men that have um, prostate cancer that need to go on medications that lower their testosterone to castrate levels, they will not feel very great. And... Um, so when if they're on intermittent therapy and their testosterone levels start to come up, they'll say, you know, my golf swing is better. I'm starting to win at tennis because they get their strength and their motivation and their energy, their mood is better. Right. So it, it's a very important uh, hormone. And if you don't have it, you are at higher risk for cardiovascular problems and osteoporosis. It, it, interesting, because we associate osteoporosis and, and fractures with little old ladies and losing estrogen after menopause. But it's also uh, men with low testosterone levels are Absolutely. at risk for this as well. Yeah, you, you need some hormonal support for your bones. So again, um, you know, it, it's a different type of osteoporosis or osteopenia, but when you replace testosterone, um, you preserve some of that bone mass. And so the, the fracture data is not particularly there, but certainly the osteoporosis and osteopenia data is there. Exactly. And so what are some of the risks associated with taking testosterone? For example, if it's a, if it's a younger man or a man, you know, people are delaying having babies today. So say a man in his 40s and he applies it and then... Uh, 
touches his is intimate with a, a woman. Right. So there's there's two risks for the younger well the man on reproductive age. Um, one Aren't is they that always you, at reproductive age. <laughs> <laughs> that never That's ends. Kind of true. <laughs> but uh, if you want to be a biological father, then you cannot take exogenous or external testosterone because that will suppress the amount of sperm that you make. So men that want to, you know, father a child, that they will uh, take some other medication to try to boost their testosterone, but they cannot take testosterone per se. Um, you know, and some men that, especially uh, if they're overtaking testosterone or steroids, they'll notice that their testes get very, very small and all that type of thing. That's a sign, you know, that they've got too much testosterone. So those pe- those guys that are going to the gym and they're uh, Big muscles, but, you know, smaller the, in other areas. And they're yes. taking steroids, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. And and how about supplements? Uh, you know, the other, the creatine, does that have any effect on testosterone? That's pretty popular. I, with- I'm not sure about that. Um, my, my main concern is that some of the products that you can get online have uh, testosterone or, or androgens in them. And people are taking them either unknowingly or knowingly. And it's, it's a fairly significant risk to do that. You need to be monitored uh, properly. Interesting. So this is a really important health issue. If you're having symptoms, you need to speak to your doctor, have an investigation, find out the reason why. I always say that. It's important to know what is causing the problem so yeah. then you can deal with the problem. So. And, and you need to be monitored, and that's important. Um, if testosterone does not cause prostate cancer. That's sort of a... a thing that's been put to the wayside now that we know it doesn't cause it. Um, it, having prostate cancer is a real relative contraindication, although there's some men that are doing okay on it. But that would be a urological or endocrinologic uh, decision. And if you have uh, active breast cancer, you can't have it either. So there are some contraindications, but overall, uh, the benefits outweigh the risks if you are low and you're replaced to normal levels. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Elliot, for joining me here in the studio today. It's fantastic information. We've learned a lot about testosterone, and it's come a long way, and, and that's so important is to get the right information out there uh, to the right people. So I appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. <laughs> well, this is starting to feel like sex in 60 seconds. Anyway, uh, I'm wrapping up. We've... Uh, uh, the show is over, and sometimes the performance is over as well. You know what I mean. Next week, uh, Dr. John Weisler, cardiologist, joins me. So we're talking about heart health on Valentine's Day. And also I'm going to talk to you about some interesting data about how size matters. But in what ways, guys? It's not what you think. While you are searching to see if your penis is too small, women are searching about what they can do when your penis is too big. Anyway, don't forget to go to the Wellness Show, and I'll see you there Saturday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday at the Convention Center. Follow me on Twitter at Back the Number Two The Bedroom. Have a wonderful Valentine's Day. And remember, I am Maureen McGrath. You've been listening to the CKNW Sunday Night Sex Show.